art on your sleeve. Hello and welcome to Art on Your Sleeve, episode 9, a podcast about art, design and the music industry. In this episode, I catch up with Pete Barrett, who is a graphic designer now based in Melbourne, Australia. But in the 1980s and 90s, he was based in the UK and is from the UK and is the man responsible for hundreds and hundreds of record sleeves that we'll all be familiar with. In the interview, I talked to him about some of the more significant designs, and this episode is a supplement to issue 53 of Classic Pop magazine, which is published at the end of May 2019. The idea of doing this podcast was to cover some of the things that had to be edited out of the print edition, so hopefully between this and the magazine, I've covered the full story, or as much of it as as I possibly could. Hope you enjoy it. Thanks for listening. Hello Pete, calling Australia. This is Andrew in Liverpool for the uh, Art on Your Sleeve podcast. It's good to talk to you. Hi Andrew, very nice to talk to you too. So let's go right back to the very start of your career and uh, of your design career and that would be 1978 with your first design for, for The Clash for a single called White Man in Hammersmith Palais. I'd been going to, I went, me and Nick Egan, my best friend at the time, um, we'd been going to a lot of the early punk shows. And um, part of the deal of punk was that you were on the same level as the bands. So when you went to see a band, you went up and talked to them. That was part of the the deal, really, of punk. Yeah. So it felt natural to do it because that was the kind of, um, the whole ethos of it. And we got to know The Clash. And um, we went all their early sh- early shows at the Hundred Club and other places, so we came kind of, we became on speaking terms with them, and um, and, and in particular the, their manager Bernard Rhodes. So um, I'd, I'm not sure how I can't actually remember how, how it all came about, but we ended up starting to do their artwork, and we did a, a tour poster, and then we did the single White Man Hammersmith Palais. Right. And obviously, it's a kind of raw Lichtenstein ripoff. Yes. The cover of it, you know. And, and was we, that what you were influenced by at that time? Were you very into the sort of whole pop art movement? I, yeah, I definitely was. I mean, when I was when I was fourteen, I saw this um, documentary on Andy Warhol that David Bailey did on TV, and um, and because the Bowie Bowie got me into Warhol because of the hunky dory and that, yeah. and then I became fascinated by Warhol, and then pop art. You know, was a. It seemed like a natural thing, especially during punk, which was quite influenced by pop art and Jackson Pollock. So, so yeah, I mean, yeah, we just I, we, we just took that thing and used it. I'm amazed that they didn't get into trouble for that because it's just such a copy of Rolingstone. An homage. It's an homage. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, because <laughs> that style sort of went through to you because you did uh, a cover for Stiff Little Fingers in 1980 for the At the Edge single, which again sort of was a bit sort of pop arty, a bit cartoony. Yeah, that was just a comic. It was like a strip from a comic that we coloured in and, and colour photo started. Yeah, I, I think it was never pop art was never far away from us uh, 
in anything I did, really. And I suppose it's still around with me now, really. Yeah. I mean, even the, de- the de- some of the Dexy stuff was, you know, like we did a poster for Dexys for the first album. It looked like a pop art thing. Mm. So, uh, yeah, so really, I mean, I think Warhol was a tremendous influence on me. And also the repetition of his things. I, I, I quite often use repetition, too. Back in the early days, you, you worked with Banana Rama right at the very start as well on their first single, which had a slightly punk aesthetic to it as well, with the ripped paper and stuff. Was, was that sort of again influenced by that? Oh, it was a mixture of a few things. Um, I'd been, I knew Siobhan really well, and I'd dated her sister for five years, and I was dating her at that time. And I knew the, you know, I knew Karen and Sarah too because they were, you know, she they used to hang around with um, Siobhan. And we all used to hang out together. So I kind of knew them quite well. And they were kind of punky too. I mean, the, the look, it, it was the kind of look that suited them because they were kind of rough, you know, around the edges too. So, <laughs> yeah. and, and they'd come through the punk thing with me too. So it wasn't strictly punk, but it was punk influence moving into the kind of 80s really. Mm. So yeah. I mean, and also I didn't know what I was doing. I was, I was designing in a way that I mean, I really, I barely knew how to put artwork together, so I just did whatever was the easiest thing to do. And, it's, um, it's hard, really, to, I think, probably now for designers to appreciate just how difficult it was because reference material was so hard to get hold of, wasn't it? You know, now you just Google something, but back then, everything was really what you had to hand, whether it was kind of magazines or scrapbooks or whatever. And yeah, so, that, that's exactly right. Yeah. So those images for Banana Rama, the, the fish and stuff, where did where did they come from? I, I used to just collect things in Oxfam shops and stuff like that, find old things and, and keep them. And um, that was just a book I'd had on, on the South Pacific. And, and it was a, it, it, the book was full of these illustrations. It was about the movie. It was a beautiful book, actually, and it had that kind of 50s printing style. Mm. And, um, and they used these little cartoons. On the inside of the book, there are a pattern. And then throughout the book, they're all over the place. And I just photostatted them and stuck them all over the Bananarama um, single. Because you know, so. <laughs> that 1950s style, as well as sort of pop art, it, it was again a bit of an influence on on some of your work of that period, looking particularly at the stuff that you did for Junior. That's got that sort of 50s, slightly kitsch look about it as well. I don't think it's ever left me all that stuff. I still like it. And I think, I mean, I knew a few other designers and kind of everybody seemed to be into it too, really, at the time. Because um, uh, Jules, Julian Baum, he he was into that kind of stuff too. So I think it was kind of a thing that was around with everybody at the time. And I, I don't think I was unique in sort of referencing it, really. Yeah. So, yeah. And I used to have a big collection of stuff that I kept. And... I mean, I still have some of it now. I have these things from that I cut out from a magazine from 30 years ago uh, in folders, even here in Australia, that I brought with me that I've never used and I keep in the hope that one day I'll use it. <laughs> and it's, it's a bit ridiculous, really. Most designers never stop collecting. I think it's in our blood, really, to just sort of hoard things.
So some of your most uh, famous work from that period, as you mentioned earlier, was the Dexy stuff, and that that the style of that is quite different to, to the stuff we previously talked about. So where did that aesthetic come about? I mean, obviously it was influenced by the look of the band, which was a very defining image for them. But how, how did the graphic style come about with that? I think it started off with meetings with Kevin. Uh, what what happened with Dexys was we we started we did their first single without actually meeting them because we we worked with Bernard Rhodes mm-hmm. and Bernie put their first single out on his on a label of he, he was doing at the time and um, and Bernie really was very keen to keep us away from Dexys so that they had no say in the artwork so and I, <laughs> and I I really remember specifically once in Camden. It was winter time in Camden, and they had this rehearsals place uh, at Camden Lock. It was right in Camden Lock where the market is. I don't know if it's still there now, that a lock, but um, it was. Um, he had this rehearsals place there, and I think Dexys rehearsed there. And Bernie would have a meeting with me and Nick at Marine Ices, which is in Camden at the time. So we'd have a meeting, and then I, I remember one day. Bernie and me and Nick were walking towards rehearsals and Dexys were across the road. And Bernie made us stay on one side of the road and we went to talk to them. <laughs> Just in case we were introduced and might start talking. So um, so we we did the single and um, it was a hit. And then Bernie didn't work with Dexys anymore. Right. And, um, and we, Bernie owed us £40 which seemed like a lot at the time, but really is nothing, obviously. But Bernie said, I don't owe you that. Dave Cork, the manager, owes you that. So I rang up Dave Cork, the manager, and he said, oh, I'm glad you rang because we want you to do some more covers. Oh, the next day, in fact, um, Kevin, the singer, and um, Corky came by my house uh, in Harpenden. I lived in Hertfordshire at the time. And uh, when I think back, it seemed this seems quite funny, really. But I had my kind of like teenage boy bedroom that I shared with my little brother. And Kevin and Corky came round to the my house in Harpenden, and it was a real working-class family house with all, the, all my brothers and sisters around, and we had the meeting in my bedroom. And Kevin and Corky came up, we had our first meeting in the bedroom, and I was sitting on the edge of my bed. And uh, to me, it seemed quite natural. But years later, I just thought, what must have Kevin have thought of me at the time? You know, it was just a, a typical kid's bedroom. But I think... He may have quite liked it because it probably reminded him of his, of his kind of childhood too, really. So, Yeah, keeping it real there, uh, keeping it real and down to earth. Yeah. Who needs posh so, design agencies when you can sit in someone's right. bedroom? That's, right, that's exactly right. So <laughs> I think, I mean, I didn't, I still, I barely knew how to do artwork. So, you know, I didn't, it didn't seem to phase me at the time at all. So we started doing the first album cover. Oh, we did this first single cover, which is Montgomery Clift, Clift on there, them idea, and then um, and then we it came to the album, and we worked out this colour scheme of, of like the Italian, the Italian flag, green, red, and white, and um, which sort of bought into the Dexys kind of Italian American sort of um, look they were wearing, the sort right. of on the waterfront look. When it came to the album, we were looking for things to use and. Well, I was at art school at the time, and they had a big all these reference folders. So, if you were looking for pictures or something, the librarians would make these reference folders of different cuttings from magazines. And I was going through the um, 
all these folders and I came across this picture and I don't know why I liked it, but I did. And I made a visual out of it and showed Kevin. And I did a few other things as well, probably a bit kitschy and a bit, you know, um, 50s-ish. But he loved that one. And it was, I think he must have known it was a picture from Northern Ireland. It was the, the boy on the cover of the first Dexys cover. Right. And, um, and we, we did that cover. And it's still one of my favorites. Even though we were, it was kind of scrapped together, I didn't really know what I was doing. But it's still one of my favorite covers, that one. So that around that time, you were kind of very much split between doing that whole body of work for Dexys and Bananarama, who were both quite quite big acts, weren't they? Well, yeah, I mean, we we with both of them, we started when the when they weren't famous. We just started at the beginning, mm. and also it was one. I mean, there was a few bands. I mean, they were the two main bands that I had a very good relationship with. We're, you know, where an ongoing relationship. I, I virtually did everything Dexys ever did. And I did most of the Bananarama covers over the years too, yeah. So, um, yeah, it was different. It was a different look. But I didn't – I don't feel like I've got a, a particular style to my covers. I mean, they always seem a bit different to me. I mean, I do one – you know, I did the style – not the style council, the jam one. I didn't feel like it looked like other things I've done. I'm not sure. Maybe you can see a, a – I think – I think as as a, as a graphic designer, you sort of you you do spot certain things that certain designers do. But I think with your work, you're absolutely right. There isn't a sort of signature style that some some designers like. You know, obviously people like Malcolm Garrett or Neville Brody, they have a very defined style, don't they? But it's not so discernible in your work, other than some of the references that we talked about earlier, like the kind of pop art and the slightly fifties stuff. But no, I mean, there's, there's a great sort of um, variety of styles in there when I'm looking back at it all now. And, and as well as those those two big chunks of work for those big artists, I mean, you mentioned you also worked for The Jam, but you also did stuff for lots of others. So there was people like uh, Lisa Stansfield, you did a record cover for her, didn't you, before she was signed to a major label? Or was that, that's her, right. In fact, no, that was her major label debut, I think. Wasn't it, it? it was. A, it was Polydor Records, that was. Um, yeah. I mean, I think... A lot of the work I got was because I'd do a, a work for a particular product manager and then I'd get on well with them and then they'd give me more work and if I did a good job, they'd give me more work. And, you know, I kind of became quite friendly with some people and that, that's how that came about, really. So uh, it it was just, uh, it was a, I mean, she wasn't, I don't know if they had any idea what they were doing with her, really. They just put the record out, really, so... And it's very it's very typical of that period, isn't it, when you look at it? I mean, that could be Sunita or Samantha Fox or any any of those people. It's just kind of classic 80s styling. That, that's right, really. And I, I, I think I mentioned to you, I mean, I didn't – I very rarely got briefs for anything. I mean, it, it was a very, very um, – you, you had a tremendous amount of freedom then because I never had to present visuals ever. Mm. They just said, could you do a cover – then I'd do the photos and then I'd put the thing together and I'd, I'd bring this artwork in, which was, you know, a collection of pieces of paper stuck on top of cardboard and different <laughs> bits of film. <laughs> I mean, have you... I don't know if you've ever seen those artworks. Have you ever seen one? What an artwork yeah, looked like? Yeah, I mean, I, I went to art college myself in the 80s, so I, that was pre, pre-Apple pre Mac as well, so I, I'm very familiar with tracing paper and cow gum and spray mount. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Letter set. The thing is, you'd take these things into the record company and they wouldn't have a clue what the thing was going to look like because it, it really didn't look... It was all done in the um, at the printers at the... Um, 
at the um, the repro the, stage. The repro people would put it all together for you, so it was kind of in your head. Mm. And because of that, they, there was they never interfered with your work. They just let you do it. So they didn't say, "Oh, could you make that bit bigger?" or "Could you move that from down there?" That came later. And also, you couldn't really do very good visuals either, because all you could do is little drawings of what you're going to do mm. on paper. But that allowed you a tremendous amount of freedom to change things or really do what you like. And also, you focused on one thing and just got it good. I mean, these days, you tend to might you might do five or six visuals before you, and they choose one and then they maybe bastardize it, mix it with something else, and and quite often it becomes ruined, you know, so. Yes, yeah, I'm feeling your pain there, Pete. Yeah. <laughs> That's the so, irony of it, isn't it? Computers have, have made things simpler and easier, but in they've also complicated things because you just get stuck in, you know, kind of 25 drafts of everything because it is so easy. Well, not easy, but, you know, people just think, oh, yeah, change the colour or move the picture or alter the logo or do this or do that, and you, you end up going through so many drafts well that's true and also um i i did some horrendous covers because you know like especially in the early days there was a point where where single covers were like two or three pantone colors yeah and then it changed to full color and i was like a kid in a candy shop <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and I, I abused my privilege i just totally you know, like I just threw it all into it, and some when I look back on some of those covers, I think they're just really awful kind of combinations of colors I use. <laughs> when I was doing the, doing the research for for your, looking at your body of work, I found an interview with you where you talked specifically about a cover that you did for the Pretenders, which I think you might have even described as the worst record cover in in pop history. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right, that's right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, they. they they said to me, because I'd done a few covers for them, and then they said to me, um, we want to do it like an old Top of the Pops album. So I looked through, I got, I went through to a second-hand shop and looked through some old Top of the Pops albums, and I used that as a reference, and, I, and it was a really horrible com colour combination, which I used. <laughs> and I used some very ugly kind of clip-arty kind of stuff, and it, it looked disgusting. <laughs> it, it's not, I could have made it worse looking at Looking back on it, I think I could have done a better job of making it bad, but I really... Uh, that was the end of my uh, relationship with the Pretenders after that, because I think I realised the... I don't think it was kitchen up for them. I think I actually delivered a very ugly Top of the Pop style cover. Mm. And um, and I didn't do another cover for them after that. So. But in complete contradiction to that, your, your sleeve for uh, for their single 2,000 Miles was is quite, a, uh, it's quite slick, isn't it, for the time? He's gone. Uh, yeah, I think that was because of the photographer I worked with. Uh, the, I, I, around that time, I was using the photographer called Bay Hipsley, who who was very good at building sets. And I think, I'm pretty sure we'd done the Banarama Shy Boy with him and the album cover. Yeah. So, so you know, I, I, at the time, I tended to use the same people for a period, and then I'd meet a new photographer, and I'd... You'd sort of move on, try different people, and you'd have a little stable of people you work with. Yeah. But I was working a lot with him at this point, and I told him the idea. I think Chrissy Hind had the idea of the spaceship, so I didn't know how I was going to do it. So I talked to him, and we discussed building it, and he built the whole thing, and he photographed the whole thing. 
Thank wow. You, so, I think, again, my probably typography probably let it down a bit. Because some, some of my, I mean, I was at this point still using letter set yeah. on quite a few others. And I think I was still using, starting to use typesetters a bit, but I think the type, the, again, I look at the typography, my old covers, it, they look really bad. It's, you, you have to remember it in context, though, don't you, about what you, it was literally what sheets of letter set you had in the drawer. That's right, yeah. And <laughs> I actually used a very cheap typesetter that was run by my friend's mum. And they really only had a few fonts. <laughs> so I, I tended to use the same fonts as, as, as they had, and that was it, really. So so things were kind of looking similar, too. But then you, you went to the big league, league that sort of within a year of that, you were designing for Madonna. You did the cover of Borderline. I don't think Madonna was that big then, and she oh, didn't yes. seem. Bit... She was just she was just starting to come through, wasn't she? It was pre, like a virgin. Yeah, and I think she was sort of picking up steam, but she wasn't, and she didn't seem any bigger than some of the other ones I was working with at the time. Right. And I, I at that point I had a studio that was actually in, in the Warner Brothers building, and they just said you, and I, you know, occasionally I do stuff for them, and they, they came and will you do a Madonna cover? So. Again, no brief. I just I was left to my own devices. I could do whatever I liked. And uh, I'd been going to New York a lot at that point. I think I'd, be, I'd done two interviews visits to New York because Nick Egan had moved there. So I'd stay with him for a month. Mm. So I, I became very influenced by America and New York. So on the cover, I, I took as the background, I took streets of New York, a map of the New York streets and I merged them with a map of London streets. Right. And um, and I, I I I took the photo, sort of black and white photo, started it and had it hand tinted, and the it actually looked quite nice. It was it, probably probably not great because I probably used the cheapest person to do it, but um, <laughs> I, I was a cheapskate at the time, and uh, <laughs> and it looked but it looked okay. But when in repro the um, photo the image became very pinky and I, when I saw it I was just so depressed because she had this horrible salmon colored skin <laughs> yeah. and the, there was, looked, were you thinking that was a deliberate Andy Warhol kind of vibrant pop art thing again and I look I think <laughs> it was my intention to make it like that but it turned out sort of you know not the way I expected it nobody seemed to notice really mm. the thing is when you do covers it doesn't matter how bad they are. They're famous. People seem to like them. Yeah, yeah. So a lot, of, I mean, a lot of people, you know, they, they like the covers that I do are famous and they tell me they like them and I just, you know, to me, they're the, some of the worst things I've done. So... But you know what it's like with record sleeve designs. They sort of, they they, 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 they have a special place in your heart, don't they? Because you're associating them to a particular I, period I, in your life. And I know, I understand that. Yeah, I mean, that's it. They, they are the soundtrack to your life at that moment. And if they mean a lot to you, then even the cover seems to be good. Yeah. So, yeah. So that kind of mixture of um, 
photography and photocopying and hand colouring and collage, you, you sort of took that forward a little bit on the Simply Red cover for Picture Book, which was another photograph that you'd... Was that hand coloured? Uh, yeah, what um, what we did was, um, or what I did, was I I took... The photo was, it was quite a nice photo, but it was a bit smooth. Mm. So I photostatted it onto black and white, the black and white Xerox. And and then I got felt pens and, or felt tips, markers and uh, coloured pencils and I coloured it in. Because the idea was to give it to an illustrator and, you know, I thought that colour it in, I'll give an idea what we wanted. Yeah. And then, then we started looking for illustrators and we couldn't see any that suited. And then we said, you know, then we had to agree we liked the way it looked already. Yeah. So, so that's, that's how that cover came about. We, I just used my original A4 coloured in picture. It's become an iconic image as well. And I think it's another example of where the limitation of technology actually helps feed the, the end visual result. You know, it's actually a really strong image because we didn't have those tools to play with in those days. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, now you can... I mean, I do... Since I've come to Australia... I just do so much more than I used to do in England. I do all my retouching. Uh, you know, I do everything that I never used to do. I used to, I even take photos sometimes. Yeah. And then I've got very, I've got really good at using bad iPhone type photos and make them kind of look okay, you know. Yeah. Because, because there's no budget in Australia as there is in England. There used to be. I think England's changed a bit. But when I left and came to Australia, I was shocked how little the budget is for music here. So, mm. so I had, to, I, that's why I diversified here. Um, but yeah, um, I mean, now you can do so much, but in those days, you, you were limited to what, you know, your pens and pencils and your glue, really. Yeah, yeah. But it's what makes you, I think it's what makes the, the real creative people stand out, you know, the kind of taking those limitations and doing something extraordinary with them. I was kind of fearless when I was designing, in, you know, in the early days, because I can't, on each cover, I wanted to try a different style or a different thing. And I mean, unfortunately, a lot of it backfired because some of the things that he were terrible, you know. <laughs> but but it, I still got paid for it, and it was like fun, you know, to be able to just do what you liked yeah. and still get paid to do it. And it, even though the mistakes, nobody seemed to even notice, notice the horrendous mistakes I was making, you know. It was, <laughs> it was a different time, you know. I'd, these days you wouldn't get away with it, but in those days people were less concerned about marketing and. They, it was just a, it was less of a kind of science then. So people were kind of more casual about everything. And it gave you, that was another reason you had a lot of freedom. Yeah, it was less of a, um, a committee of people working on it to try and tick all these boxes. It was more just about working with the bands themselves, having an input on it. That, that's exactly right, yeah. I mean, the band had loads of input on it then. They, they, were, they had a lot of freedom too. Mm. I mean, these days it's different. The, the marketing person is... I mean, I personally think marketing is destroying the culture. Yeah, I think it's, it's it's horrendous how much how much marketing there is and how everything's become so stagnant by marketing. I think you know, and because and I think it, by, by working like that, you end up following trends rather than setting them as well. Uh, well, exactly. Yeah, I mean, you, you're asked to do something that's basically whoever's currently popular. Yeah, they want you to do something like that, but, which is kind of true at the time a bit as well, but. But I think it's become so rigid, it's, it sort of designs the thing for you already, you know, yeah. so...
Moving on to um, your work for Bronsky Beat. So Jimmy Somerville left Bronsky Beat and then they came back with, you, you came up with a very iconic style for them around that sort of drumming character, which, which will have all been hand-drawn at the time, I guess. That, I can't remember what year that was, but I didn't get a computer till 1990. And even right. then, it, it would have been about four years before I really was really operating on it properly. I, I was just basically laying stuff out on it. Right, so this, is, only... this is five years before you got your, your first Mac oh, then. That's right, yeah. So, yeah, I, I hand-drew that, I think, and I, can't, I honestly can't remember the evolution of that image. I don't even remember drawing it. Well, actually, I do a little bit. I remember drawing the squares, and I remember having a, all my old-fashioned geometry gear out to do it. But, <laughs> but, yeah, but I was never great. I was a sloppy worker. I always made mess of everything, so I'm amazed it looked as good as it did, really. So, Did you used to make, uh, design things really big so that when you sh shrunk them down, they looked really tidy and clean? Yeah, they, they do. You do <laughs> big, and then you... I don't know if you remember these things. They had a thing called the PMT machine. Yes, yeah. And, and you had to... Um, you, do, you did it big on a bit of card and you reduced it down onto those things. So, yeah, that's pretty much how I must have done it, really, because it, I think if it examined it closely, it probably would be fairly sloppy. <laughs> and do you remember <laughs> much about why they went for that particular look? I mean, were they trying to hide the fact that Jimmy Somerville had left or was, is there any particular story about how that design came together? I don't... I, can't, I really can't remember, but I remember working quite closely with them. I remember... They had a studio and I used to hang around their studio working out stuff with them and taking images. And So I, I did actually work quite closely with the band, but I really haven't got much memory of what, you know, how, how the whole thing evolved, really. You're forgiven. It was, uh, that was 1985, which it's further strange, away than it sounds. The strange thing is I remember other things clearly at that time. There's other things I can remember really much, you know, very clearly that that is one of them, really. But... um. So London Records, I did a lot. I mean, they were on my, because Bananarama were in London, the Bluebells were in London. I did a lot of work with London, and I, I was very friendly with the team there. Mm -hmm. And they just really just let me do what I liked. It was great, you know. They, they just trusted me to just get on with it, you know. Just, just going back a little bit then, you mentioned the Bluebells, because that, that design that you did for, for the, uh, you did the album Sisters, didn't you? And you also did one of the, sing the Forevermore single with the, the character from Kess on the cover, sticking up the two fingers. That came out of a conversation with me and Bobby, and Bobby was dating Siobhan for a while as well. Right. So, in Rama. So, um, we, we, he was kind of hanging around and we became friends. And I think that was just a, a, came out of a discussion and I went to some film shop and found the image. We didn't, again, we didn't ask for permission. <laughs> so, so, and Chumbawamba did it later. They used that picture on one of their covers and they, they did almost exactly the same treatment as I did on the Bluebells one as well. <laughs> Another thing we did on the Bluebells was I, um, it shows you the kind of, kind of industry it was at the time. On the Bluebells album, Sisters, I just took postcards that I got from the Tate Gallery and put them on the cover. <laughs> <laughs> one day, a phone call from the girl, who's a very nice girl uh, at um, London Records, said, oh, Pete, um, just to let you know that you, you shouldn't have used those pictures on the Bluebells. And they listed about five because they're owned by photographers and we've had to pay them. <laughs> so, 
but I did, again, I didn't really care, you know. I didn't really, I, I didn't feel responsible, I was, you know. It was a different sort of time. I think now I'd be more concerned, but those days it just seemed, you know, <laughs> it seemed okay for some reason. Uh, so just moving on to, we talked briefly about Simply Red before, but around the sort of mid to late 80s, you were doing pretty much everything for Simply Red around that whole, the new flame period, is that right? I'm not a big fan of the music of Simply Red, but the um, that set of single covers and the album covers, there were Jürgen Teller pictures, mm. they they all really worked together really well. They all looked like part of the same thing. It was, an, you know, they... I, they're one of the few things I can look back on and think they looked okay, you know. Yeah, it's a nice collection, isn't it? They've, they've all, they've all um, got that sort of pinky, pinky red colour in them. They're all blared images. That's so. right, yeah. He, well, I think what he did was he, he took two transparencies and put them together and scanned right. them. That's right. why they've got that kind of slightly overlapping look. In 1990, you worked, began working with Prefab Sprout. Probably the two main companies I worked with were, at the time, was uh, London Records and Columbia, who are now Sony. And I did I did loads for Sony. I did Roachford and um, Pasadena's, and I can't remember who else. There was there was a lot I did for them. I, I, you know, I was always working on multiple jobs at the same time with them. So I was always up there, and um, and I, I used to sort of see Keith Armstrong, the manager, out. So I kind of, you know, I didn't know him that well, but I, I saw him new to look at and say hello. And then they got me in on um, Jordan the Comeback. And once I started working with them, and I met them, I really, really liked them a lot. You know, they mm. were, well, I'm a Geordie. I'm actually a Geordie. Ah, uh, right. I like to be around Geordies anyway, so... <laughs> so. <laughs> For me, it was nice to be working with Geordies, you know. I, I moved to uh, to Hertfordshire when I was six. Right. But, but in my heart, I was still a Geordie, you know. So um, you can't you know, beat me, you was... can't beat Northerners, Pete. They're the best. <laughs> we are. <laughs> for years, I I resented um, London and the South. I particularly hated Hertfordshire. For years, until I, I was sixteen, I really didn't like it. I always wanted to move back to Newcastle. But then when I was 16 and I started kind of, you know, develop my own personality and becoming a bit more myself, started going to London, then it changed. And then I was just the right age for punk. You know, until then, I used to go back to Newcastle all the time. So when I met Prefab Sprout, it was a sort of familiarity with them for me. You know, the accent and the, you know, it's a bit like family when you meet, you know, you meet an old family, a family person, you sort of have a kinship with them, you know, so... So, yeah, so I started doing Jordan the Comeback and I got very, very involved with them. And, and I really, you know, I spent a lot of time with them on the covers and with, the, with you know, Keith and the band. And, and it was a very, very enjoyable time for them, you know, and, and, I, and a very fruitful time because I liked the Prefab Sprout stuff that I did too. I enjoyed doing it. That particular sleeve for uh, Jordan the Comeback, that, that's, it's hard to work out what's going on there. What were you, how did you get that effect, that sort of blurry, well, watery? I, I worked with this photographer called Jerry Judah and I, I was him and, and funnily enough, I'm recreating the cover at the moment actually. Uh, what, what Jerry Judah did was he, he shone coloured light into water and then stirred the water up into shapes. And then they took loads of photographs of it. 
And then I, the font I, I put on top of it, which I, I played around with to make it look watery too. Wow, it's a, it's a lovely effect. I mean, that whole range of sleeves that you did is lovely for them. I mean, it's partly down to having the Douglas Brothers images to work with, I guess. But Well, the, that was the Douglas Brothers came later. I think they came afterwards on the next one, I think, on Life of Surprises and, yes. and some of the singles around them. But yeah, they were great. They always did really interesting stuff. I've done a couple of prefab straight ones lately. I did their... Um, Crimson, is it Crimson Red? Yes. Yeah, and, and I did a painting for that. It was, um, Paddy didn't know what he wanted, but he just had one thing in his head was Mark Rothko. So I, I painted some Mark Rothko things, I did a number of them, and I sent them and they chose that one. So, you know, I still do quite a bit of painting and, you know, I do other jobs here too where I, I use paintings and stuff and um, kind of mesh things together. I've never ever really mastered the computer that well. You mentioned uh, when we were talking previously about some of the Jimmy Somerville stuff you did. You're not particularly proud of that work. Is that is that yeah, an example? Look, yeah, I'm not. I don't hate it. I just don't like it either. It's just a bit. It's a bit dull, I think. You know, and I think that that is the case in point with what I was just saying. I mean, it's okay, but I think I was kind of sleepwalking a bit. And and then when I came here to Australia, I started pushing myself again. And I started, I had to sort of reinvent myself here. And uh, and it was good because I think I moved, I became much better. And it stopped me from getting lazy, you know. Like in the early days, I was pushing myself on every cover. Mm. Uh, but, but you know, then I, over here, I tried more things. And I, I became more investigative and, and looked into things and researched things more. And um, I mean, I, I'm still capable of doing something pedestrian. <laughs> But, I mean, some things, you know, I always think quite often, you know, what is required is not good, it's mediocre. I think quite often you, give people, you try to give them something good, but what they actually want is mediocre. Mm. And uh, sometimes, you you know, you, you know, you can give them a, some great things and they'll still want a mediocre, they'll choose your worst visual, you know. I've got to the point with design now, what almost everything I do turns out good. You know, I can usually make everything look good. Yeah. Whereas... I, Whereas those days, in the olden days, I, I sometimes attempted some things and they didn't, they, they fell short of the way they were supposed to be. One of your um, sleeves, and it's 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 an odd one to bring up because it was such it's such a sort of fleeting sleeve, and not many people will even know it. But as we're, as it's about to be the Eurovision Song Contest, as we're recording this, um, you did the UK's Eurovision entry, um, Lonely Symphony for Francis Raphael. You did the sleeve of that, and it, with a very sort of punky style. That's right. Yeah, um, you are. There must be the only person who knows that. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think it disappeared into the ether that one so like many that i did i remember at the time thinking the union jack doesn't seem such such a it seemed a bit pop art again mm. i don't know what i thought that you know like it through punk it came out he had all that national front stuff coming in this sort of late 70s and yeah and it it no longer seemed a fuddy-duddy thing anymore and it seems nice to use it for some reason i don't know why it did and it was I mean, you mentioned about Britpop. It hadn't become assimilated into Britpop at the time because Britpop, it was a bit early. For, it was in the early days of Britpop then. Yeah. So, so uh, I mean, I don't know why I 
thought that, but that I thought it'd be good to use it. And of course, there's the Sex Pistols, mm. you know, the old punk in me coming out, rearing its head again. So, um, so I, I used the Union Jack as. Is she standing in front of the Union Jack on the cover? She, she the, is, yeah. I think yeah, it's, that's, it, it's interesting, particularly because it's a Eurovision song as well, and and a lot of those Eurovision record covers are just so anodyne and unimaginative, and then suddenly you've got this sort of Jamie Reed punky thing and it's like wow that's the uk song for eurovision <laughs> well i did i mean my only thing was i just didn't want to i didn't want them to do something that looked cheesy you know mm. so and i thought it'd be fun to do something and i'll she she was quite open to look doing something to be an artistic too so around that time you were working with and i was quite surprised when i discovered this because i i I, I knew a lot of this work was yours, but I didn't know you'd done those suede covers. How did that come about? The A&R man, Electra, who I think he saw, he was he, he worked with Simply Red, was called Saul Gulpin. Right. And and he lived in West Hampstead, which is where I lived at the time. And I'd bump into him from time to time, and he said, look, I'm doing a new label called Nude Records. Could you do some designs? He says, we're just starting off, so I haven't got any money. So I said, all right. So I, did, <laughs> so I did it. I did his label designs and stuff and that. And then he started signing bands, and he signed Suede. Wow. So, um, so then I started doing the Suede stuff, and it, it was those days where there was still an element, you know, there were, there were a small label, and they, they could only use, I think, three colors again. It was almost back to the, to the late 70s. Yeah. Uh, and to keep the prices down, we used three colors. And so it kind of limited me, because I was limited to three colors, I kind of, it created the style of the early suede covers because mm. it was a very minimal, it's always a white background. We had an image and then we colored it in a certain way and I just picked out areas and did tints of the same color. But it, it I, the first three suede covers are some, you know, three of my favorite covers. They still look really great, I think now. So. Yeah. So what, what, what's the story behind the image? I mean, particularly the, the drown as an animal, animal nitrate, but... Oh. That was um, that was um, Brett. Brett would come in with stuff, and we just, you know, take the images. He'd find these images, and that, we'd put them into the look. That was all Brett's kind of instigation. So another artist that. Um... I'm aware was very involved in the creative process was George Michael and you started working with him in around the mid 90s that right and around spinning the wheel and older that album yeah yeah it was the older album and it was um George started brought the stuff around and he started coming around and and I'd, I he was somebody who I knew to say hello to because he was around in the days of going to the wag club so I kind of knew him a little bit, but I, I couldn't say I was friends with him, but I, I knew him to say hello. So he came he came around and brought all the stuff around and we started talking. And and I think we had about two days where he, he I mean, he really is completely hands-on. Mm. He, he wanted to be sitting by my computer while I was doing it. And so he'd get really, start getting frustrated. And at one point he grabbed my mouse and try to pull it off me and do something, but he didn't really know how to, to um, work a computer. It, <laughs> no, it was as if, it, it was psychologically, it felt like he'd knocked everything off the table. 
because then all the pages went out seeing it was just a real mess and we both and we both got agitated <laughs> so so what i did was i just I, said, I can't face another day of him sitting breathing over my shoulder so what i did was i took every format that we worked on for the older album and i did three different versions of it in different ways and then i the next day i went around his house and i, I printed them out took them around his house and he just said, oh, that one, that one, that one. And from then on, it was really good. He was really, you know, he, I think he trusted me after that. I think it, it, everything went, went, you know, really smoothly after that. So. Coming more up to date, uh, we've already talked about the crimson red cover for Prefab Sprout, which you said was influenced by Mark Rothko. But right up to date now, this year, in fact, uh, you redesigned the reissue of I Troll the Megahertz for Prefab Sprout. I did a whole bunch of visuals for that and sent them to Paddy. And some of them I did that looked a bit like the old um, the old kind of um, stereo test albums yes. where you test t- yeah I did a few that looked kind of like that because uh, some of the other images looked quite a lot like that so I used that a bit but Paddy chose the one he chose so but I quite like album covers that are like wallpaper where the image goes right around it I, I like doing things like that with album covers now it's very different to that because I, I bought that originally and it's very it's very white and minimal the original sleeve isn't I it? I saw it, it yeah. It's original. not very good. I saw that. I, I did, Paddy sent me it so I could have a look at the cover for so I could for information. But yeah, I thought it looked terrible mm. when I saw that. <laughs> a bad example of minimalism. When I design, I don't think too hard about things. I just I do things kind of the way they feel. I feel everything. You know, when I do it, I just put together what feels right. That's all. And, um, yeah, and I mean, that was, it didn't take me long to put that together. It all went really very smoothly, really. Once Paddy had chosen the thing, it was pretty straightforward. So if people want to see more of your work, I mean, I, I use Discogs as a, as a reference, and there's nearly, because we've skipped right through your whole career in about 40 minutes here, but there's 300 record covers just on Discogs alone of your work. You know what? Just before you came, before we started talking, I thought I looked on Discogs because a friend sent me a link on Discogs once. And when I look at it, it's a horror show. A horror show show about the covers. You know, there's one or two that look good, but the majority of them, I think, wow, you know. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's the ones ones you mentioned, mostly are things I don't really like much. there's, There's ones I actually personally like, some of which I'll put on my website. So your website is hoof.net.au, isn't it? That's right, yeah. Thanks very much for speaking to me, Pete. It's been a pleasure looking back over decades of, well, I'll say fantastic work. You'll probably say horrible work. but Yeah, there's <laughs> one or two in there. And I hope you enjoy the article in the magazine as well. Okay, thank you very much. And it's very nice to meet you and talk to you after these last few months. Cheers, Pete. See ya. See ya.